When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There it is. There it is. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for coming back for another episode of Unfollowing Mum. As you probably already guessed, I have a guest with me this week and I am super excited to speak to her. This is someone that I have bonded with over Instagram. As we've we've just said, trauma bonded. We've trauma bonded over Instagram, not just from our shitty experience with parents, but also when we've been talking about things like PMDD and just, yeah, general life. And I'm so pleased that I have met her. This is Elspeth Vanderhall. And we've just had a conversation about asking for names. So she's giving me the thumbs up in the background. Like, yeah, you said it right. So <laughs> I would like to introduce her and just tell us a bit about yourself. Hello. Okay. So firstly, thank you so much for having me on. And like you said, it's so even though the main topic of this is around estrangement, our lives sort of really interlink so yeah. deeply over so many different levels. Um, so to give you a little bit about me, I am a fitness coach. I'm a photographer. I'm an illustrator. But I am overall, I'm just me. Mm. And I think that is important for me to say because I've spent so much of my life placing value on what I do that even then I instinctively introduce myself by my profession (laughs) rather than just being me first. Yeah. Do you know, I I do that as well. And I also will lead with like, I'm a mum of three. (laughs) I never, I'm always just a bit like, I'm like, why do I give my stats before? (laughs) I'm just like, like, these are the things about me. But how else do you introduce yourself, really? It's a really interesting thing that I've been observing in myself mainly recently, how I introduce myself to people, Mm. because I've realized that a lot of it is based on my childhood and my upbringing and that desperate need for validation and acceptance in in what I do, because there was so much deep emphasis. And I think we're the same age, I think, aren't we? I'm 33 34 I'm nearly yeah yeah, I was in January just tipped you to it (laughs) oh yeah we're both 89 babies yeah um so I think that's where probably also why we overlay so much Mm. in terms of our experiences because I think our upbringing was never around 
discovering who you are or finding happiness it was getting the best grades it Mm -hmm. was being at the best school it was having a good reputation it was never speaking about the family outside of the unit it was stiff upper lip it was place your value on what you do what you achieve and how you represent the family as a whole there was never really anything about just use yeah yeah absolutely and you for me it was less about the the good grades. There was definitely that being at the good school so that my mum could be like, oh, yes, my daughter's here. This, that yes. Weird, which I look now, and when my parents separated, my mum could no longer afford to send me to private school, but she ploughed herself into so much debt to try and keep me there and then put such negative connotations on me having to leave that not only did it deeply damage the way I felt about my new school when I eventually did have to leave, like I was terrified to go to that new school, but it also really damaged my relationship with my dad because he was the one that wasn't paying child support. All of these different things all centered around just basically being able to keep up the Joneses it was never and it was always held over me as I gave you the best education and I I did this for you and you know when you're just like I didn't didn't, (laughs) I didn't ask for that you chose that and it made our lives so much harder it was it was always a bit more about keeping up with the Joneses and a bit less about the grades and things but also down to like I was almost like a parrot I was raised to kind of just parrot her opinions, parrot her beliefs. And if I stepped back from that, I was like, I don't agree with you. Like (laughs) that, that homophobic shish you're coming out with. That's not how I feel. Or that actually mum is really weird. When I started challenging that as a young adult, that was when the problems really started for me because it was like, it was weird to challenge it. How dare you challenge? You are just a, a mini me. Yep. I had exactly the same. And it's so funny because just to caveat this, we have never spoken about this before this podcast and your experience there is exactly the same as mine. So I went to seven schools altogether. And the first, I think the first one was a private school. And then I went there from when I was like two and a half. And in hindsight, that's probably because they just wanted to also get rid of me for a bit. Mm. And because it was full school from two and a half, it wasn't like nursery. It was like, I remember having like a full PE kit and a blazer and all this stuff. Like who, like I was two and a half. (laughs) And then I went to another couple of schools after that, that were uh, state schools. And then there was one school in particular that I went to where Actually, so altogether, I've been to three private schools and four state schools. Mm. Each of the private schools, I don't know necessarily about the first one, but definitely the second two, I was removed because we couldn't afford it. And so the and and that wasn't in the way that my parents made that decision. That was because the schools actively kept saying, you're not paying the fees. This child can't come in. So the first school I remember being at, I was only about seven or eight. We had to have everything from indoor shoes, outdoor shoes, pumps, wellies, trainers. We would have to wear pumps and overalls to set up for lunch. You would have to eat perfectly and eat everything. I remember getting screamed at by a teacher for not holding my spoon right at the age of seven. And we had a teacher at the end of every single table and you would have to eat everything on your plate. And if you didn't, you'd be shouted at. And at the end of every lunch you would get allocated an item and I will always remember the fact that forks are called fourchettes in French because you it would be shouted in French and then you'd have to take it up and I think back and I'm like that was a seven-year-old child right and so that doesn't sound awful that whatever it was it was a bit weird it was but the stressful thing was every single morning 
I remember I would come up to these school gates and you'd be in your, your black outdoor shoes getting ready to change into your brown indoor shoes. And I would be sick on the pavement every single morning and have to be dragged into that school. They decided it was because I wasn't eating breakfast in the mornings. So they forced my mum to bring me in half an hour early every morning. And I would sit in the canteen bit in like the kitchens with the, the dinner ladies. And they would essentially force feed me Marmite on toast. And they decided that that was appropriate and for a seven slash eight year old child when actually what was happening was I was being emotionally abandoned at home and my sister was in the senior school and she behaved fairly precociously and she was quite had a bad reputation and I was known as insert name here a sister and so I gained her reputation so the teachers hated me my mum didn't particularly like me and didn't want to support me emotionally and I was just being told it was because I wasn't eating breakfast. And now I look back and I'm like, that small child had crippling anxiety and was very sad and just needed a lot of love. And I, I, it blew my mind when I think back to these moments in, with the adult brain I have now, that child just needed love. Do you know what's really weird? What? We've never talked about this before, but... I feel like we're about to have a spiritual experience together today. Grabby <laughs> crystals! <laughs> I so I went to a when I was little my private primary school was like a very tiny village school by the time it shut down there was 30 kids there and I was so happy there but it shut down as I was about to go into year six when I was like halfway through year five so I had to go to another school in the interim before I could go to this secondary school that was hailed as like the be all and end all and I did love it at that secondary school it was called the mount in York and I, I loved it there I had a, a wonderful experience there for the 18 months that my mum could uh pay off credit cards you yeah, pay it off using credit cards and that kind of thing until I had to leave because we couldn't afford it this interim school that I had to go to I despair despised it and looking back there's lots of reasons I despised it but with you saying you threw up every single morning I cried every single day to the point where eventually it was almost forced upon my mum to take me to see a therapist because they couldn't work out why and she sat in that room with me with that therapist and you could see the therapist now knowing what I know the therapist actually gave me tools that you use to um, work with CPTSD so you know where they teach you to find a safe space in your mind mm -hmm. and to, so for me, it would be like sitting in a water, like a waterfall area. I, I was nine. Wow. I was nine. And that therapist was telling me how to do these things and how to try and control my breathing. And knowing what I know now, it was trauma and it was all surrounding huge anxiety because I didn't want to be in this place. And like you say, emotionally abandoned or being treated at home as the stand-in spouse, the stand-in therapist, the best friend, which really drives me bonkers. And when I think about cycles repeating, there is a very small local Montessori that is like a nursery preschool. And we sent our kids there because it was deemed to be the best in the area. And we thought it was amazing. And Reuben had a really negative experience there, my eldest. He he kept saying he hated it, but he could never really verbalise why. And he was only maybe three or four because this was a preschool. But he'd go in two to three times a week just to try and help him get a bit socialised. And 
knowing what I know now, not sure that was necessary, but we thought it was the right thing at the time. And then somebody said to me, they pulled me aside and they were like, I wanted you to know I witnessed something with Ruben today. He dropped something because they had to pour their own cereal and get their own uh, breakfasts, get their own lunches, that kind of thing. Which, again, it's a, it's a little bit odd, but it's not. It's it's encouraging them to do things for themselves, yeah. and that's very much Montessori philosophy. And I don't think there's necessarily anything inherently wrong with that. But he dropped something and he'd spilt some milk, and this mum, who didn't take her daughter out, which baffled me, pulled me aside and said, "Look." I witnessed something today. Reuben was screamed at so much. And that's not the first time I've seen him being shouted at. But also he, the other day, was wet and nobody changed him. Oh, and he, that breaks he was, my heart. He was out by the end of the week. Toby, who absolutely loved the nursery portion of it, were out by the end of the week. And they never set foot there again the difference between my reaction as a mother and our reaction as parents finally realizing oh my god that's what's wrong that's why it's not just because we're being told as brand new parents he's a clingy toddler he doesn't like it there because he's frightened there yeah but also there's generally a reason there's generally a reason why a child is clingy Uh, you don't just obviously I'm not a mother myself but I'm, I'm basing it on my own behaviors as a child like my I look back and I'm able to understand why I behaved certain ways I didn't have the vocabulary express myself the way I do now so it would come out in physical behaviors mm-hmm. and so even things like I remember um there would be a distinct a, a total distinction between my brother and me and the way we both behaved in terms of when we were overwhelmed so in terms of the narrative that was put on it so I used to bash my head off things when I was really overwhelmed like I would oh my god see (laughs) so did I (laughs) and and this has also transcended into adulthood like I think the last time I did it was probably about a year or so ago and I've had to work really hard not to do it and not to resort to that but when I was a kid It would almost be laughed about that I would have carpet burns on my forehead. And I distinctly remember the joke about Duplo bricks. Do you remember like big Duplo? Yeah, yeah. Um, Apparently I used to smash my head off them and I'd have like Duplo circles on my forehead. And this would be laughed about as me being, um, what was the word? It was, uh, if I I quote, if if Elspeth doesn't get her own way, she does this. However, and, and I used to hold my breath until I passed out. And I remember there was one time where, I think I'd come round and I said to my parents, why did you wake me up? I was in a nice warm pink place. So that's weird. But anyway. Worrying. um, Yes. Also weird that I was quite happy to stay asleep. Yeah. Um, And then. Is that not like for a normal parent, that'd be such a big red flag for, for anybody who had that emotional connection like we were doing everything we could and we were being told at the time oh you know Ruben's possibly neurodivergent you need to get him assessed and we were doing everything we could possibly think of to work out why he wasn't enjoying the experience but Toby was what we could do and as soon as this parent said I remember we picked him up And I called the school after we picked him up and said, neither of my kids are ever going to be coming back here. And that was it. That was the end of the conversation because to find out that that was the reason why you act on it. And yet we didn't have that. Uh, Yeah. And that's that um, that that blows my mind that I think now you and me are sort of exercising that autonomy over both ourselves. And I will with my future children in the same way you are with yours. 
I want to give them that voice and help them find an understanding of their voice. And just going back quickly to what I was saying before, the narrative that was put on my brother, and this is to highlight how I think you said it in a previous podcast or we've spoken about it before, how we all have different parents, even mm. if we have the same parents, because we're born into a different dynamic. So I have an older brother and an older sister. My sister's seven years older than me and my brother's five years older than me. And I was, quote, a surprise baby. Um, and yeah. We all know what that means. Um, and the way my brother's narrative was pushed around when he would hold his breath and pass out was that, oh, he would do it when he was in pain. Poor little thing. Like he's hurt himself. Mm. He's holding his breath. Whereas for me, it was, oh, that one's spoiled and selfish and difficult. And she's doing this to get attention. And it's like, oh, my God, like who's going to actually hold their breath until they pass out because they want attention? And also, I will say this to so many people, attention seeking is not a negative thing. If we reframe when somebody wants food, could you imagine if we just sent they're just hunger seeking? I'm not giving them any <laughs> food. How dare you hunger seek? Like it, it just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah, but, absolutely. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, this is the way I've helped myself rationalize that myself now and myself as a child, I am allowed to want attention. Attention isn't a bad thing. Like it, it's a, it's a human need. We all need it in some form or another. Whereas it, I need it in different ways. Sometimes I need attention from my partner in a loving way, or I need attention from a friend to feel like I have connection within society, or I need attention from my boss to reassure me that I'm doing well at work. Like attention isn't a bad thing. It's a human need. And in, yeah, and, and when we reframe it and we understand about hunger, like you, if someone literally turned around to a child and just said, you're hunger seeking, how dare you? you that there would be some kind of like social services involved there. <laughs> yeah, it would be but so bizarre. But when it's attention, yeah, mm. it's attention's got such a negative connotation to it. But if we, if we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Oh, love st- it. Yeah, stability <laughs> and care uh, and nurturing they're all in there at the very very foundation of everything and realistically is attention not just a different word exactly. for those things and yet we frame it in such a negative way and you know I've said it about my kids because it is that thing that we are brought up believing that if you're acting out a certain way if you're doing a certain thing it's for attention but what you've got to look at is why do they feel they need to do those things yep. to get attention what's happening here that they feel that they need to get attention. And that's when, for for me as a parent, I will sit down with my kids and say, and my mum used to say to me, you are attention seeking, but you're going to get the wrong kind of attention. And that was very much done in a threatening way. Whereas I will sit down with my kids and say, hey, what's this about? This is coming off very much as I want some kind of attention. What is it that you're needing right now? Because at the minute, the wrong attention's coming because I'm getting frustrated and cross. It's the same words. It's yeah. just a totally different way of parenting around them. And I think so often it's viewed that unless you are aggressive or you are being threatening or even to the extreme of hitting, you're not disciplining that child or you're not explaining to them how they should be behaving or keeping them under control. When in reality, you, you're doing all of those things just by speaking to them. I think when it comes to how we parent around attention seeking, it's so interesting, like you said, to understand what we are bringing to that interaction. And it's so easy to lose ourselves in that moment and just carry on the pattern of what our parents did. Mm. And um, interestingly, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and you probably know this already, but generational trauma 
and trauma any trauma is um as well specifically generational is transferred through our dna yes yeah. yeah so i thought you'd already know about this so when sometimes we respond to things and especially we haven't been taught how to be parents so we think that we're going to go into being a parent as this like amazing person that's not like my mum but ultimately i've never parented before so realistically when i have a child even though i don't want to be like my mum that was the only like example of parenting I was given firsthand so I will probably resort to behaviors like hers I just have to learn to catch it and it's because I haven't had a chance to exercise that yet to undo that DNA and so I think that's really important to note for anyone listening to this who is finding that they're speaking to their children in the same way that their toxic parent did that's not your fault that might be a subconscious behavior that you just need to take a second to like you do, you go, right. Okay. Am I meeting this with the wrong kind of attention? What do I need to be meeting this with? And how do I need to give them a platform to communicate it? Because they don't actually have the words. They don't know what they want. They don't know what to say. So I think that's really interesting to sort of see that you've said that you've met that with similar behaviors, because I think hearing that from a mother gives me reassurance that when I come to be a mother because that's something I fear a lot I fear Mm. that I will have children and that I will do the same thing to them and that I won't be able to love them in the way that I need to I actually had hypnotherapy a few years ago around trauma nightmares and what they did was they went through something have you heard of personality fragmentation yes yeah so he went through um essentially working through where my trauma lay in what years of my life it lay and it literally was the majority of years shock yeah. um <laughs> ooh, <new> <clears throat> um and obviously the first trauma showed up as quite literally me being born right. and i had to visualize holding myself as a baby and giving myself the love that baby needed in that moment when it did not get the love it needed and that shows that like your life is already off on a very stressful footing yeah but i couldn't visualize my own I couldn't visualize the face of the baby that I was holding. It was like there was some massive block that wouldn't allow me to love that baby because I didn't know how to. And I had an extra session because we spent two hours and I just couldn't do it. So I had to come back the next week and we went through it. And eventually I managed to do it and I managed to kind of get to this place of an understanding of love for this child version of me, which really helped me to see that in the future that I will be able to do that and I will be capable of doing it but there was just so much deep fear and you probably had that as well before you had a child of how am I going to do this because if my own mother couldn't love me properly is there a thing that means that it's just ingrained in you to not be able to love rather than that you can learn to yeah and I think you can learn to I think that generation was just fairly screwed but <laughs> <laughs> I'm discovering that more and more I think that generationally it's oh you you can tell the difference when you're speaking to someone about what generation that they come from yes massively yeah massively and that's something I think I, I wanted to talk to you about as well because I read something the other day about how um, I think it was you can see the difference in millennials and Gen Zs, not because of the obvious, not because they're happy to wear low rise jeans again, which is somewhere I'm never going back to. No, hard pass. <laughs> um, but it was that it was a TikTok and it was how millennials and Gen Zs show up differently in a hair salon. 
and millennials will walk in and we'll quietly close the door and we'll apologize for our existence as soon as we've arrived and we'll say oh no don't worry you do whatever you want to my hair that's absolutely fine they'll do a terrible haircut you'll probably ask i think it was for a money piece and a soft um bailage but which i think is the way you say it and i could never get that word right <laughs> um and you might have some gentle layers and then they'll probably do it really badly charge you three times the price that you should but you'll still say thank you and love it and pretend to love it and leave quietly yeah. And yeah. you'll get out of there and you'll make yourself as small as possible. And it was even down to stuff like you literally sit on your own coat and have your handbag under your legs to make sure you take up the yeah. least space. Yeah. Whereas, <laughs> yeah. See? Ah, that's so true. Right. Whereas um, Gen Z walk in, they literally chuck their stuff on the floor. They throw their coat to someone who's standing nearby and not in a not in a uh, sort of entitled way, just in a we're allowed to do this. People are helping me. I'm allowed to get help way. Um, and they get all like bouncy and excitable and they take up space and they bring snacks and someone offers them a drink and they say yes they don't say no and they don't say oh are you sure I'm sorry I'm taking too much space up yeah and the correlation was that boomer parenting taught us that we should never take up space and we should always apologize for our existence and now gen z's are being brought up by millennials who are going please take up space for us like we need you to do it <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, and it's so true because that's the big difference. I look at how I parent my kids versus how, and I I, don't, I think the one thing that I want to get across with this is that nobody's asking for perfection. No, not you meant to think, be, please don't be perfect. Yeah, don't be perfect. You are meant to make mistakes. You're a human being. And I read somewhere that parents only actually have to get it right 30 to 40% of the time. Nice. In odd, like, th- like, come on, mum, I was asking for 30 fucking percent. <laughs> that's like, less than I needed to pass my degree. Right. I mean, come on. What the hell were you doing? You'd got a bar that was on the floor, my guy. And I think if if you put it in that perspective, less than half of the time you have to be getting it right in order to form a healthy connection or a somewhat healthy connection, because it boils down to accountability and to reparation when things do go wrong. And it's all in how we repair it, because my God, things are going to go wrong. But I look at how I speak to my kids and I look at how I encourage them. And my mum used to say to me, well, I've always encouraged you. I used to tell you, you could be anything you wanted to be and I'm like yeah you did while simultaneously saying to me all the money I wasted on your education that was one of her favorite phrases all the money I wasted on your education and I'm like did we have the same mother did we have <laughs> well some of my family is from up north so maybe, <laughs> maybe. hi <laughs> Long lost. Honestly, I've found enough long lost siblings for this year. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, no. I oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God. I, was yeah. To, I, was about to, I was like, hang on. I've heard this. And yeah. she's not joking. <laughs> no, she's really not. My um, For anybody who hasn't listened to, I think it was episode two of the podcast. Yeah. My dad's adopted daughter got in touch with me to tell me how disgraced she was that <laughs> I was daring to speak ill of him. I'm like, look, honey. You enjoyed him for three years. I survived him for 16. I mean, we are not the same. You can't make it up. Very much indicative of what we've already been saying with how different parenting experiences can be for each individual. And with you saying about how things were different for your brother, even with the same parents, 
completely different experiences. And again, now we've got this new generation. And if you look at how, and I see it all the time on TikTok because there's such a, a wide range of generations. I get a lot of boomer parents who will come to my content to be really angry and who will see my post about a stranger and be like, you're so ungrateful. You owe your parents for this. I'm like, no, that's a debt mindset. Let's unpack that. Whereas Gen Z just walk in and be like, fuck off. <laughs> how dare you how how dare you speak about that I don't owe my parents shit and I'm like <laughs> I am learning so much from Gen Z and also yeah. Gen Alpha which is something yeah. I've only recently discovered that you'd already know about because your kids your kids must be alpha right yeah they are and my gosh they are I saw something the other day that said um so millennials well Gen X have started the change yeah, because, because they, it goes boomer X millennial, yes, right? Yes, it yeah. does. Yeah. And Gen X's have started the change, but they're totally forgotten because the boomers yeah. are so busy focusing and warring with millennials who have made these big jumps in changes. And then you come to Gen Z who are much more interested in, in, in the environment, in this, in that, in social uh, change. And they're making big changes but they're not quite there yet. But by the time Gen Alpha comes in, my God, will we see? And they'd, they'd linked it back to history and in how, if you look at history, these massive radical changes in society tend to happen every so few generations. Wow. So you'll have Boomer, X, Millennial, Z, all starting to make change. And then that fifth one comes along in that 50-year cycle and bang, wow. there's this massive change. And I thought, you know what, actually, knowing what I know about history... That makes sense. And it's because we we tend to go in cycles as humans and we see what our parents did and go, I didn't like that. And that doesn't feel that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel good. How can I how can I do that differently? And then we yeah. tweak things and then our children look at us and go, oh, I don't like that either. <laughs> how can I change that? But we're willing to sit behind them going, that's fair. I get yeah. why you didn't like that. I've made an error there. Let's talk that through. Whereas our parents would have just been deeply hurt that we dared to think they were anything less than perfect when no one's perfect. The, but this was the narrative. And that's kind of why I started in the way I did, where I caught myself, where I'm trying to stop doing that. I'm valuable via what I do, because there was such a heavy, deep emphasis on that perfection. And even it's so interesting, you said a second ago about the I spent so much on your education, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Because I was simultaneously told by my mum, I remember the phrase, um, someone has to be the best at blah, blah, blah. So why can't it be you? And I used to think that that was a really reassuring, like, oh, she did support me in some things. She's told me I can be the best at this thing. And in hindsight, I've realised that that was because she wanted me to be the best. So mm -hmm. she could say this, it, my daughter is the best at X. And I remember after my dad died, she in literally like the week after he died, she told me to hurry up and earn my millions so I could look after her. I was 23. I was really tired and trying to finish my degree and my dad died. Like, yeah. and I look back at these things and I remember at the time, the amount of people that met me with such disdain of, but she's your mother. How dare you do this? It's obvious. And, and it's because of their own fear that we, we as a human race cannot comprehend that a mother would be anything other than all encompassing all loving all perfect rooting back to that mother nature like caring loving wonderful human 
and they cannot understand it so therefore it is easier for the human brain to believe that the child is the problem yes because we can accept that like as a as a thought process our brains allow us to have that with less discomfort mm. and so now i'm 10 years into estrangement i don't give a shit if you want to tell me that oh but she's your mother i'm gonna say all right then where's she been for the last 10 years yeah because if you want to play that game i'll meet you in the middle but mm. also i don't actually want her there like i have grieved a mother that i didn't have i don't grieve that one like that that one can stay there that one made me really really sad and i'm really proud of 23 year old me for identifying these patterns and going even whilst in survival like deep survival mode there I had two choices. I either stayed in that unit or I literally packed my bags and left the morning after my dad's funeral and I never went back. And there was so much fear in me, but it was like my body knew that there would be more fear if I stayed. And even after that, I was told there was so much negativity around what I did. I remember I was in such like a deep hole afterwards that I would just sort of hover about on Twitter, just chatting shit, which we all did back then. Yeah. And I remember, and I was like on benefits. I just, I'd finished my degree. I was homeless and having to live with a friend's parents because I had no money and nowhere to go and everything was awful. And I just, I couldn't handle working because every job I had, I'd end up quitting because I would get too overwhelmed and crumble and fall apart and then lose my job. And so I was doing my best to rebuild. And I remember there was one day I was watching this morning, a classic, uh, a midday TV distract from my brain, terrible views, everything's bad, (laughs) but it's easy watching. Yeah. And they, they had a segment about toxic friendships. And I remember I tweeted saying something like, not friendships, but my getting away from my narcissistic mother and siblings has made me 10 times happier or something and my brother shared it to his Facebook and wrote hashtag projecting my sister also wrote something similar to that on it and then all of their friends chimed in to say that I was um watching too much ITV that I I think my brother mocked me for having a made-up emotional instability disorder and then and that was after I'd sent emails to my mum like literally begging for her to acknowledge that I've had this diagnosis of borderline personality disorder and I needed her to understand that I wasn't this like spoiled awful child she made me out to be she had a part to play in it and I needed her to take some responsibility to which she never responded to mm. and there were other things in that thread I remember seeing um comments like about how how I pose uh, how I flex too much in the mirror and I've got duck lips and ironically this was before I started bodybuilding and got my lips done so I'm like come on hands we've gone we've gone up a level from that so (laughs) but I think I look back and it's like I before this year I was so afraid of even saying those things like even saying that that thing out loud to you there Mm. that has that plays on a loop in my brain and has done for 10 years going oh my god do I flex too much have I got a made-up instability disorder am I projecting am I this horrible person that that my both my siblings and my mother say that I am when all I've wanted to do is just have peace and be loved yeah that's what it boils down to doesn't it and it's funny that you say that things stick in your mind because I was looking the other week and I've started wearing my hair with that mid parting where it's in a tight bun at the back and I said to Adam I don't understand why I always feel like having my hair up doesn't 
suit me unless I've got it in like a bun, like a mum bun piled on my head. Why do I never wear it in a ponytail? Like when it was really, really long or I had to like lean my head back. And I remembered, and it's and this is the thing with trauma. Once you start working through it, loads of stuff starts popping up for you. And you're like, oh shit, that makes sense. I wish yeah. it didn't. But you start to remember lots of things. And I remember my mum saying to me, you look spiteful when you've got your hair up, when she was doing my hair once. And I was at my grandparents' house. My grandparents were dead before I was at secondary school. So no, my grandma was dead before I was at secondary school and grandma would have been alive. So I must have been really little. And that's subconsciously stuck with me and played on a loop. That drive and fear of never being good enough comes from all the times I've I've, I've been heard everything I've I've done for you, everything I've paid for your education, all the money I've wasted on you. And then down to like she one of her favorite phrases, and I can't tell you how many times I've said to her, especially when she was living with us you've got to stop saying it because you know you only say it when you want to hurt me. And now I'm aware of that. It doesn't hurt me anymore, but my God, it makes me hate you. So stop saying it because it's hurtful. And she used to say to me, you're just like your father. Oh, I used to get that phrase. Yeah, but I was raised to believe that my dad was the worst human being to ever walk the earth. So for me, it was literally like saying you are scum. You are. It was her acceptable way of saying you are like scum. And it would be sort of, you're very like your father if I did anything that was good business-wise because he was very good with business. So it became a backhanded compliment as well as in a big argument, oh, you've got that spiteful little face just like your father. I can't imagine trying to... I can't imagine using my partner or even if I wasn't with Adam and it was just we'd separated we'd had an awful separation and he was just the kid's dad I can't imagine using him as a weapon against my children that's just to me utterly baffling but that was the kind of behavior you're dealing with and it makes you question whether all these things that they're saying about you are the ones that are accurate and I think when you grow up in that instability you don't trust yourself no trust who you are you it's it's always and you don't even know who you are you have to work it out but it's always a case of trying to work out whether their version of you is the right one their version of you is real and you've made everything up in your head and also understanding are you thinking via their voice or are you thinking via your voice because Mm. I didn't realize for years after the estrangement I thought in my mother and siblings' voices, and I would, um, I thought it was a healthy thing to do to, to, I almost think five sentences ahead of myself now so that I can protect myself from what that person is going to say back to me and that I'm not going to fuck up. And even doing something like this is a huge healing step for me because I'm trying not to be afraid of what I'm saying. Whereas mm. before I'd almost PR train myself to be like, okay, if you dare say any of this out loud, they're going to come for you. Because I remember there was one time when I was, I was in year 10, I think. And by this point, I was at a state school, but I'd already gone through another private school where I'd been kicked out of for being too poor. So that was a whole other story. But this was my final high school. And I was in year 10 or 11. I remember I had a full-blown breakdown. And in that year, there was quite a lot of a blackout. Like, I don't remember much of that year. And looking back, that's a big red flag. (laughs) Because also I have... I don't know if you have this trauma memory thing, but I can remember 
almost everything ever I can remember what I was wearing on like August the 1st 1999 like Mm -hmm. things like that I don't need in my brain but that's why my trauma hangs on to it all but um I remember being in year 11 and I broke down completely and I was in the art room with my art teacher which all traumatized children did at school (laughs) I did art (laughs) see (laughs) do you go to there on your lunch breaks as well to hide maybe (laughs) bingo (laughs) it was either that graphics or resistant materials oh shut up (laughs) yeah I did I actually spent so much and I had a real kind of like connection with my art teacher yeah and she had like a weird kind of she was wonderful and it wasn't in any way inappropriate it was almost like a maternal instinct that was kept at a professional level yeah but she was probably one of the only people that I really really connected with on the staff because everyone else I really felt like I was butting against them in an authority way yeah Um, I could I couldn't cope with authority at all and I think that probably is the same for everyone who's gone through what we've gone through because if your own mother treats you the way that they how are you supposed to trust any other authority it doesn't make sense and often I don't my mother was also against anything authority based Mm. so it would be like if I and and now I understand that as because that would mean other people get too close to us and so on that note on both of those notes oh yeah I had this breakdown to my art teacher and I remember she got me talking and I spoke about how bad the relationship was between me and my sister because my sister just did not like me. She never did. I, she she was seven when I was born. She was moved away from her home across the country to live somewhere else. And it all just coincided with I was the, this representation of this change in this family dynamic and it was never supported. So, of course, there was that awful dynamic there. And so I'd broken down to my art teacher and basically said, this is happening, this is happening, I can't cope at home, all of this is awful. And she called my mum and said, I think you need to deal with the situation between your daughters. And my mum turned up at the school, bollocked me for talking about the family unit outside of the family unit and literally took me home and shut me in my room and that was never spoken about again. And I remember I would go to my dad all the time and say like, why is this not being done about this situation in our family home? And he'd just go, oh, it's just for an easy life. And it's like, whose life was easy? And the problem was, I was such a, even though I was, I would have the same thing as you where I'd kind of kick back against authority. I was also a very easygoing, like safe child. Yeah. Oh God, the, the easy kids. Yeah. Then, you know, if you have children who just seem super easygoing, the good child. Yeah. the good child is quite often the child that is struggling really struggling because it's normal to test authority around the home and I don't feel like I ever really did that around the home I would do it at school but I think that in itself is telling that I I felt like I could do it at school like I felt like I could push back about against the teachers but not at home I think mine was a weird one because I kind of could at home but because I was so much younger than my siblings there was, it was just a really odd dynamic when I look back at it and I'm still mm-hmm. unpicking it now. And I think that's also important to note for anyone going through this is even though I'm 10 years into this, I am still constantly unpicking this. Like this will never leave me. Yeah. These are things that, like I said, when I become a mum, that's all going to come back up again. Every single chapter of my life, every time I reach a new age, that's going to come back up for me in a different way. Um, It's just... And, and and going back to how you said about not understanding reality, when my dad died 10 years ago and I, I left my family home and went through that homelessness and 
there was no stability there was no I had nothing and exactly what you said reality was what I struggled with and that I remember saying it to multiple therapists like I don't know what reality is anymore I don't know what is real I have nothing to measure anything off and if your own and I've said it even to this day when I'm overwhelmed I'll say it I'll get into a full-blown meltdown and I'll go if your own mother doesn't love you what what's real because you're always told that that's real and like one of the last conversations I had with my mum I asked her if she even loved me and she didn't say anything and so when people say to me like oh I'm sure she loves you she's your mother I can say no (laughs) I literally asked her yeah (laughs) I mean she's literally told me like yeah yeah her silence speaks volumes yeah and that leads us perfectly to just as before we came on we spoke briefly about silent treatment within family Mm. units and and when people when I put boundaries I've only been able to learn to put boundaries in recently because I used to think that silence was punishment yes and so and that I couldn't use silence in any other ways and when I say use silence that's probably incorrect phrasing but you couldn't allow yourself to be silent allow yourself to just sit with it yeah yeah and I felt like I constantly had to explain myself to counteract what that silence was when I was younger because silence in my family unit meant you've done something wrong the whole family unit's not going to talk to you now after we've had a shouting match first Mm. we're then we're then not going to talk to each other for at least three or four days maybe a week and then there's going to be a day where maybe someone goes would you like this for dinner and then everybody happened yep like it never fucking happened no apologies no addressing of anything and then lo and behold a few weeks later it happens again maybe it's a different family member we're icing out this time who knows Mm. And so going into adulthood, I was probably then more vocal about absolutely everything and anything. So I was so afraid of thinking that silent treatment was going to be a punishment for people. And I didn't want other people to feel that. I wanted to make sure they knew that this is exactly what I was thinking. And and even if you hurt me, I'm sorry, but I need to tell you why I'm doing this. And, and then I'd end up apologising to the person that had hurt me. And so even with friendships, I've had a few things in the last couple of years where people have crossed so many boundaries And I've learned that I don't have to give vocal boundaries all the time. I'm allowed to give unsaid boundaries that make it clear whether it's body language, whether it's stepping back, whether it's it's taking more time for me. I'm allowed to do that. I don't have to repeatedly explain everything's okay with our friendship. I'm taking some time for me. Mm -hmm. And I found that people aren't understanding that 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 boundaries don't equate to silence punishment if that makes sense so it's a real difficult one but I'm having to learn that I'm allowed to step back and just focus on myself without people think I'm thinking I'm punishing them absolutely and what we'd said just beforehand is how there's almost this attitude that and I'd mentioned it in episode one of the podcast that uh, cutting a parent off is a form of abuse in itself and you'd said a really good point there that links in with this about how that is because that parent that person who feels that way has always used silence or removing their presence as a form of punishment this isn't punishment this is seeking peace mm-hmm. huge difference this is setting a boundary in place and I have a podcast lined up to talk specifically about boundaries because they're so misunderstood and somebody had said something to me about all this setting boundaries that just shows you're a narcissist and all you want to do is have it your own way and I'm like well (laughs) somebody didn't read their boundary book because (laughs) that's so not what this means boundaries is not about controlling others 
No. It's not about saying to my mum, you can't do that. You can't come in and sit at our dining table, eat a meal that I've cooked you, tell me that it's bad and then make homophobic or racist comments whilst my children sit there and everybody eats in silence because we're so uncomfortable. I'm not saying you can't do that. You have the power to decide whether you do that or not. I'm saying to you that won't be tolerated by me because it crosses my boundary. So if you choose to do that because that's your choice, then I will not allow you to come over to this space again. That's the boundary. The boundary is only ever what's within your control. So when we are cutting off a parent or when we are saying, okay, no, I just need to step back a bit, even if we're not verbalizing the I need to step back a bit, even if you've not sat down with a parent and said, I'm cutting you off because of this, we've made it perfectly clear in the past what we will and won't tolerate. That's not a form of abuse. That's not using silent treatment. That's saying this is the boundary, which is quite obvious. If you behave in that way, I'm not going to tolerate it. Absolutely. And I think it's so, I'm really excited for that episode, by the way, just to like, I think it'd be useful for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it'd be helpful. So much. And it's also something to add to that is as I've gone through my recovery with therapy and understanding, like I use exercise as therapy and I've really learned how to make my body mine again and feel Mm. like I'm in control of it. And what I've realized is that trauma is very much your brain has been disconnected from your body. What we were taught when we were younger was not to trust our own brains, not to trust our own bodies, and everybody else knows knows best about absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. We don't know best. And I, as I've gone through my trauma recovery and I've gone through whether it's ex- using exercise as therapy or it's actual therapy or it's, I don't know, reflexology, chiropractic, everything, I've realised that healing trauma is getting the brain to meet the body once more. Yes. And you feel so whole in that connection of trusting yourself and being so competent in your own decisions that you don't need to look for external validation. You don't have that pang of, oh my God, if I had a mom, I might know what I'm doing because they might actually be able to help me and I can't do this. You start to learn, my brain's in my body and I am making a confident decision and that is the end of that thought process. And the same things hap- same thing happens with boundaries is that when we have finally met our brains with our bodies and we've learnt that we feel whole there I'm going to protect that with my whole damn life like I'm not sacrificing that wholeness again for anything so those boundaries that I put in whether it's with family whether it's with friendships the reason why that is in is because I know how painful it is to disconnect from myself again and I won't I won't abandon my younger self in the same way that I was abandoned and I, I refuse to do that. And if people don't understand that, that's absolutely fine. It's not my responsibility to explain to them what I need to do for my life and my health and my safety and my peace. They can have whatever narrative they want about me. But now that I've made that true link and that connection and come back to my whole self and my boundaries I'm confident in, it's so powerful. And I think you've reached that point as well. And we will both waver occasionally and you'll have those wobbly moments where you need a parent and you need something. But when you find that wholeness and those boundaries, it's actually no wonder that other people don't understand boundaries because so many people are disconnected from themselves with or without trauma. Yeah, so true. And it's, oh, I think once you start setting boundaries and once you start self-validating 
and being able to sit there and say, actually, no, how do I feel about this? How is this impacting me? Am I in a good space? Am I okay? And checking in with yourself. You can't stop and you start to demand so much better from everything around you. You know, for me, I'm only three years into estrangement or coming up to three years in June. But in between that phase of cutting ties with my mum and now, I feel like I've had a real breakdown and it's allowed me to come to this space now where I feel, and my therapist actually said this to me uh, the other week and I was like, oh, I feel like I've got a gold star. <laughs> and uh, she said to me, I feel like it's slotted into place with you now and you are in such a confident, better space where you can um, what's the word where you are sort of backing yourself where mm-hmm. you're self-validating where you are coming through for yourself and actually showing up for you because when you deal with a narcissist or when you deal with somebody who is toxic especially as a child you learn to self-abandon yeah you oh yeah I completely sacrificed myself completely I, I, and that's actually interestingly just brought me to another point that I wanted to discuss where uh, when we look at the generational thing, our parents' trajectory of life was very much uh, one linear track of you go to school, you go mm. to college, you go to uni, you get a job, you have your children, you have your husband, you do that one job for the rest of your life, and then you probably retire, have a nice retirement, you've got your house that you've bought, done. So even though my family life wasn't like that, because at various points we had no money, and at one point we slept on the floor of my dad's office for like three weeks because we couldn't afford a home. Like, there's all these things that I look back and I'm like, oh, that's not a funny dinner party anecdote. That was trauma. (laughs) (laughs) So... Anyway, that aside, the reason why I'm saying this and that trajectory and that that uh, that ex, uh, expectance of them to have children, that's why there's so much resentment I find with that boomer millennial link because not only are were boomers just expected to have kids and they were taught to sacrifice themselves and that sacrifice was where their identity lay. So our identity lay in value, theirs lay in sacrifice, and so as we've got older and millennials have gone hmm my value is based on my career and what I do therefore I will probably have children later and we start to realize that maybe we want to be a bit more healthy before we have children or maybe we don't want them at all we we exercise our autonomy and that's what uh, that's what boomers didn't tend to do so there is that deep resentment and that's why it comes through with the I did this for you I sacrificed this for you because they were taught that that's how to show love in the most fucked up way which doesn't actually mean they love you just to caveat that but there's so many nuances here which when you remove yourself objectively and don't get me wrong I'm massively privileged to have been able to do this because I'm 10 years into an estrangement and my life now has absolutely there's no connections in my life now or like this house I'm in my family have never been to it they don't know any of my friends they don't know any of I'm a very I'm an entirely different human being now to the person I was when I was then so I'm very safe in what I do but with that there is that privilege of being able to step back and objectively observe my childhood almost as if it was like a tv show that I'm just picking apart And so when you get to that point, that's where a lot of your healing will really start to cement itself because you, when I was in the throes of it, I wasn't able to validate myself because I was still that person. And it's very hard to validate the same version of yourself Mm. because 
you've been taught that you're attention seeking and you're selfish and you're spoiled and if you're and like you said how people come through and they say you just want it your own way yeah (laughs) whereas when you're older and you can look back and I can go right 33 year old version of me says 23 year old me if she was here now I'd give her a cuddle and go fuck yeah you're doing really well and I cannot believe that you are still alive (laughs) (laughs) like just high five for yeah ticking along because that's enough yeah. And that's impressive considering what you went through. I just want to veer off slightly because you mentioned that your estrangement happened after your dad passed away. Mm-hmm. Did you did you have a particularly close relationship with your dad? And how do you, looking back at it now, you you mentioned that he would often say, oh, it's just for an easy life. And I hear that so much from people that talk about and that because for me, it was just me and my mum. But it's almost like a, a form of enabling. Oh, yeah. And oh, how, 100%. How do you look back at him and, and your experience with him? So I'm this is a very interesting one because we romanticize the dead. So mm. I am always very careful of my opinion. My viewpoint of him sits firmly on that of a child with a father and at a young age so like I I don't know how my relationship would have been with him now we clashed quite a bit over the years but we were also very very close and we didn't clash in the same way that me and my mum did we clashed in probably quite a stereotypical Mm. teenage daughter causing havoc and father way but he he taught me a lot in terms of he taught me that I'm allowed to quit things he taught me that I'm allowed to be self-employed. He would do things like I was at Southampton Uni and I was only there for three months, but I was five hour drive away from home and I was wildly homesick. And I remember calling my mom and she just said, I don't know what you want me to do. You're too far away, which I was kind of like, that's kind of the point. Mm-hmm. And my dad got in the car and drove to me and picked me up. So like that shows the difference in what they would meet me with. Whereas, and this is where the dynamic is a weird one because I was very close to my dad but not in like a I don't know how to explain it like we just sort of got each other and it was never really forced and we did really nice things like he took me to my first football match when I was in like I think it was like 2006 and it was just little things like we'd go to air shows together or he used to rally drive. So I'd go and watch him rallying. And there's like the one of the only pictures I've got with him is us at Silverstone when I was like four. So he was kind of an eternal child and I don't think he was necessarily a very good husband. So that's where the dynamics were difficult because I would get told certain things about I would have basically everyone in the family unit would be slagged off at one point or another by somebody so oh, like yeah. yeah there was this constant push pull there was no sort of like I don't know who was in the right and who was in the wrong half the time there's this is not me pushing blame on to anyone because I didn't really understand it um and basically when he was dying as he so he had bowel cancer from when I was 17 he got it when I was 17 first and then he was nearly in remission for five years. And then he got misdiagnosed twice because they told him he had a stomach bug, sent him home. Then they went to hospital. They told him he had uh, constipation, sent him home with laxatives. Then he went into hospital to have keyhole surgery because they thought he had adhesions, so like lumps of scar tissue on the old surgery where they'd removed the cancer before. And they went in and they saw a load of tumours and they just went, oh no, off you go home to die now. 
and they literally just abandoned him. So that would have been when I was 21, 22. And seeing him gradually decline in it, yeah, it was awful, but it all it, it meant I was I was the only emotional one in the family, right? So I instinctively was very good at death, but also that's where it's really fucked up because all of my grandparents died when I was young. My auntie died when I was 12. My um like most of my family died like under the age of 60 or like when I was young. And so I think that's also where it's brought me a whole other perspective on with the estrangement. It was kind of like, I've experienced so much death that I know that if I allow myself to live a substandard life, I won't, I, I will be sad. And I'm like, I could literally die real soon. So let's go and try and do something nicer. Yeah. But when dad was dying, he, we had some incredible conversations and I've spoken about it on other podcasts, but we had some amazing conversations about how he felt about dying and how he didn't, he even said to me himself, we didn't talk enough, did we? But then as he got less and less in terms of the emotional barrier, so he wasn't an emotional man himself, but I think he met my needs in the way I needed them to be met. But I realised he picked up the emotional slack from my mum. Also, he would kind of shut down any issues, which isn't healthy, but that's why it never became something bigger and the estrangement never happened sooner because I'd fall out with my mum and he'd sort of go sort things out with your mother and then that would kind of yeah. be it. Whereas obviously then as he was dying and he couldn't do that anymore, that's how things became this like bubbling pot. And then I, from my understanding and how I've looked at it all objectively since, my mum potentially had quite a lot of jealousy towards my relationship with my dad and I think my sister did as well and I think there was a lot of unspoken feelings that I didn't understand and I think that's also why I'm very sensitive to people saying that I they're jealous of me now because a lot of people will say things off the cuff like oh I'm so jealous that you've done this thing or you've done or you're so brave I'm so jealous that you're able whereas to me I see that as soon as someone is jealous of me or if or I've had to work really hard not to be afraid of doing well at something because it will always be met with disdain and anger and jealousy from somebody in my direct safe unit, which wasn't mm. safe. Um, and so I think as soon as the penny started to drop that my mum couldn't meet my emotional needs. And if anything, my dad was masking that she was like negative in the emotional needs yeah. department. I just had to save myself. And again I've spoken about it recently the actual details of it but in a nutshell my I wasn't allowed to do a reading at my dad's funeral I was told that the adults had to do it but I was 23 and so it's kind of like but at the same time I was deemed a child in certain circumstances where I wasn't told about certain things in the, in the family or I was expected to be left out of stuff like the speeches but then I was also expected to be an adult in the sense that I was supposed to manage my own emotions and look after myself so there was a constant mixed signal going on yeah um which and is then so it, hard to navigate awful impossible to navigate yeah and that's also another reason why I didn't know myself because and didn't trust myself because I didn't know who I was meant to be and I had no guidance and I had no support I just had constant criticism and constant negativity and then when it came to the funeral itself I remember my partner was asked to be a pallbearer. He was younger than me as well. 
And there was always a narrative pushed around the fact that he was not good for me when actually it was that I met him and he encouraged me to talk. And anyway, and that's another podcast for another day. Um, but and then I was there was no space for me in the car that they all went in to the funeral. And so I drove myself. I wore a blue bowler hat and I wore a really nice dress. And I was like, I'm going to hold my own here. They stood apart from me at the funeral. So I was standing on the other side with my auntie and my uncle, who had also been estranged from the family for years. Wow. And um, there was so much estrangement in the past as well from both sides of the family. So you can see where the patterns have just trickled Mm. down. And then I wasn't spoken to at the wake at all, even though it was in my own house. I was so fortunate that I had my friends with me who had come from uni, even though they hadn't met my dad. And then the next morning... um, my mum and my siblings went off for breakfast and it was only my brother's girlfriend that turned around to me and said, are you coming for breakfast? And she was fairly new to the family. And I said, nobody has asked me. And they all got went and got in the car silently and drove off. And my friends just looked at me and were like, is it normally like this? And I was yeah. like, ha ha ha, yeah. And they're like, <laughs> maybe, maybe not good. And I was like, oh. And it was like the biggest, biggest other shoe dropping. Mm. And in that literally split second, I had a choice in that exact minute. And I remember where I was this day. I could either sit there and stay and do what my dad did and say to look after my mom and this, that and the other. Or I could pack my bags, drive back to my flat because I was still at uni in Nottingham. I had a few months left on the lease. I could pack as much as I could into my car and I got out of there and I didn't go back. My partner tried to go back. A year. Well, we tried to resolve things over about a year after because over that course of that next year, my uncle then died six months later and then my auntie died three years later as well. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of death. I think my dad's cousin had died as well. So there was just so many funerals, so many situations where I would then encounter them again. And I tried really hard to hang on to that connection and I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I just I got to a point where I was so worn down and I was so beaten by all the nastiness and all the nasty words that were said about me that I thought I was evil and I thought I was bad and I thought I was this awful person that no one should ever be around and I'm nearly crying saying this yeah and I can say it's such a hard memory to work through though yeah and it's that understanding of reality and I think I never will understand the full reality around that but what I do know is that I made the right choice for me and I'll never ever regret that and yeah, after that, ended up bouncing around um, various friends, family homes for a few years, sort of begging for help because I didn't have any money. And then um, I managed to set up my first business, moved into my own place. And my best friend and my partner went over to my mum's house with a man with a van, bin bagged everything they possibly could of mine and chucked it into a van and brought it to my new house. And that was that. Yeah. So... <laughs> This is the thing, you know, that baffles me when people don't grasp estrangement. Like, listening to that, I I have never spoken to anybody or come across anybody who would choose to become estranged and to go through that traumatic experience of being homeless, of completely ostracising themselves from their family, from what they've, the only thing they've known to completely step away from it all out of spite or because they weren't mm-hmm. getting their own way or to oh, have a bit of a yeah. temper tantrum. It's just, no, nobody is doing that. It is literally a difference of, if I continue this way, 
what is going to be left of me? What is going to, what is my path? What, where the hell do I see this going? Who will I be in five years time if I stay, if I allow this relationship to continue, if I stick in this position where I am being treated this way, where what you've described there is classic scapegoat within Mm -hmm. a toxic family dynamic. Oh, yeah. If I stay this scapegoat, if I stay in this position, will I even be here in five, six, seven, ten years time? Or is this going to slowly kill me? Because that's 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 what it would do. Exactly. And even full transparency after that scenario, I um attempted to unalive myself three times over the over the course of the next five years after that. And I, I that's the thing I think people don't understand is when they say to me, like, oh, but she's your mother and this, that, and the other, I'm like, I did I didn't want that. I didn't yeah. want to spend my first two Christmases after my dad sitting on my own. I didn't want to spend those birthdays without any anyone. I am crying. Yeah. Hello, therapy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't. I didn't want that. I wanted no. my mom. Like I wanted my family, and I. I didn't want to have to leave my dogs behind. Like that broke me. And so I think these are the things that people don't see. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine because it's real. Because it's accurate and true. Yeah. And it's it it's the reality of it. Nobody wants that. And I've said so many times when I've talked about my estrangement from my mum, I went to speak to her to ask her to leave our annex with the with a, a, a full plan that would set her up financially and allow us to have a low contact relationship. And her attitude was essentially, if I can't have it my way. Yeah. I and she's even said to me before I'm going to hit you where it hurts and destroy you mm-hmm. and I think you know there is so much missed within the estrangement conversation that literally nobody wants to be in this position it is the shittiest thing yeah to and it's do you ever see with you saying I didn't want to spend my birthdays alone or without those birthday cards without those it's if you can put yourself in the position of feeling that fear when you do get a birthday card or when you do get some kind of contact (laughs) from them, if you can, if you have that healthy dynamic and you flip it to where contact from them is a source of fear is something that can literally make your palms sweat, make your pulse race, because that's how negatively you feel about Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. Then surely you can understand that that is not a healthy situation to stay in. You are stuck in a trauma and the yeah. only way to remove yourself from it is to literally physically remove yourself from it yeah and I think there's two types of representations we see online of estrangement and one is the you and me who are really powerful in our healing and confident now in our decisions and essentially we're we're well on our journey we're not in the throes of it but then the other side you see is how I started speaking about it when I was first um estranged and you'd sort of have a I mean I was 23 and I'd have a big wobble online of like oh my god this has happened yeah and so you get there's two distinctions nobody sees the pain in that they see difficult child causing drama they don't see this person is really 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 sad and considering ending their life because they just want a mum and also essentially both my parents died at the same time like I but but the difference is I'm having to grieve a parent that's still alive and say for example like my cousins lost their parents um three years after my dad died so like I said their 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 dad died six months after mine and then their mum died three years later so they it's been interesting looking at the dynamic of that because both of their parents died 
And so therefore there was a lot of care and empathy, obviously, because there fucking should be. But because mine also both died, but because just my dad died and then my mum is technically still alive there was I was treated by society in such a different way when realistically on paper both things happened to both people they both lost their parents and neither one is better or worse than the other because both are fucking awful but it was just so interesting to see how people really don't understand estrangement and I think that's why I've always been so I've been careful about how I've spoken about it for my own sake because I've had to protect myself because I'm still very afraid of what will come from things like this but I'm starting to speak out more because I know that I needed this I needed to hear these stories when I was younger I needed people like you and me who on the on paper if we never spoke about this on paper we could look like we were having the easiest fucking lives like do you know what I mean like yeah but I to me the hard-hitting stories don't help me because I don't relate to hard-hitting because it, I that feels so emotionally distant so you know how like we can read news articles of someone being murdered and we're just like okay on with my day yeah Whereas... that's actually that's there's a there's a psychological link there between trauma and how it helps you so a lot of people who work in nurses who work as paramedics they see such trauma yeah. their brains process it differently so it's actually it, it alters your brain chemistry does trauma and mm-hmm. that's why we can look at stuff like I can read some stuff I, I remember the only time I've ever been truly affected it was when a little girl was it was on the tv and they showed it on the news god knows why I'd not long given birth and this news article came on where this little girl um it was in I think it was in China she'd been hit by a car but they showed the video clip of it and then someone else drove over her because that's how cheap and ambivalent that's how cheap life was and how ambivalent it was and that that was what they were highlighting was this is the crisis the humanitarian crisis going on here and I just I remember screaming why is that on the tv why are you letting me see that first time I'd ever reacted to anything like that and it was all the hormones of having just given birth but my mum just looked at me and was like what is wrong with such disdain of what is wrong with you I think you're having a breakdown how many times do you get told you're having a breakdown if you express any kind of emotion yeah and I suppose in a way I it, it just really affected me but it shocked me so much that I had a response to it because I never really had and I don't think you do have responses to trauma yeah you've lived in it and that's why for me it's been really important to present it in such a gentle everyday way because for me as a trauma survivor yeah I always feel really uncomfortable with that as well abuse abuse victim or trauma survivor I'm like (laughs) but they're both accurate (laughs) Yeah, because I don't feel comfortable saying them because I feel like there's I have so much fear around people telling me that I'm wrong mm. and that I've imagined it all and that I've made it all up and actually I'm just difficult. So that that's my own issue, though. That's something yeah. that I need to deal with. It's the but, same issue for a lot of people, though. It really yeah. is. And I get it quite a lot where I got somebody said to me the other day, you're a classic case for BPD. And I was like, well, I mean, I've asked my therapist and actually, no, I'm not. <laughs> But also, but it's thank just you. fucking trauma. But it was stigmatising. Yeah, it is. And then she'd said, you're a sociopath. And I was like, well, I'm, you're going to have to pick a condition at this point, hon. <laughs> and then she said, then she said, I was a liar. And I was like, but you understand BPD is trauma. You've just told me that I'm lying about my trauma. So which are we just flinging out insults? Because if we're just using mental health conditions to fling out insults, 
that's really telling about you and says nothing about me. My trauma is just as valid and it doesn't have to be physical or sexual abuse for it to be valid. Emotional abuse is so damaging. That's that's been the hardest thing for me to feel like I'm allowed to talk about it Mm -hmm. because obviously for so long emotions and emotional abuse was just not seen as a thing. Yeah. And so like I even remember when I was younger, there was a thing on Radio 4 when I was probably in my teens about um, emotional abuse. And I didn't listen to Radio 4, my parents didn't. I remember my mum sort of jokingly saying to my dad, oh, sounds like what you do to me. And everything was just like, ha ha, very funny. On we Mm. go. And it's like, I look back and it's like, now I've got that perspective. I, 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 I don't feel... I don't know what word I feel, but I look at it and I think there's so many of us in that unit that could have been saved by just being heard. And I think that's why I'm allowing myself to process anger now because I, and you'll probably relate to this. I thought I was a really anxious person for a long time, but it turned out that it's not being acceptable for us to be angry because when we're angry, people tell us, that that weakens a you're looking at me smirking <laughs> when you're angry yeah. people tell you that weakens um like your argument or like I won't listen to you when you're doing this this and this so my anger started presenting as anxiety because people and I and this was a real subconscious thing I've literally only learned this in the, like the last month where my anxiety was more palpable it was more digestible for people so it was people could would stop for a second and don't get me wrong I was still misunderstood with it and I was still told to calm down and cheer up but if I was angry like my mum went around telling people that she was scared of me and that's why she didn't bother having anything to do with me my mum did yeah and so I think from knowing that your own mum says you're scary and literally telling people that and that's the, the reason for the estrangement was because I was scary then I had I I I learned from that that I wasn't allowed to be angry because anger meant that I would be blamed and I would be told that I was bad and evil and wrong and all these other things. So that anxiety came through and now I'm allowing myself to process that anger. It's been phenomenally liberating, but it's also meant that I'm no longer angry towards them because I'm letting that anger just be alive in me and kind of embracing it. It absolutely makes sense. It really does. I kind of, I can feel sometimes when I have anger. Yeah. And I shove it down. Feel it. But yeah. And I have to physically take a deep breath and start to disassociate Mm -hmm. because sometimes I feel like if I just take the lid off the anger, if I just, and I remember having a massive row with Adam once and he'd just been like, just say it, say everything you want to say, get it out, let it go. And I couldn't stop. Once I started, I couldn't stop. And then I ended up, I can't even remember, couldn't remember what I was saying word Mm -hmm. to word because I was completely disassociating as I was Mm -hmm. speaking. And there was so much rage there that I felt like if I really let the lid off it, I'd never get the lid back on. And I think sometimes that's what bubbles up as the anxiety surrounding your feelings of estrangement. And I spoke to somebody called Abby Williams, who does You the Mother, and she is a therapist. She was saying about the concept of forgiveness and how she absolutely does not agree that forgiveness is something you have to give in order for you to heal. No, you don't have to forgive anything nope. you have to be able to process it and you have to be able to look at it objectively but you don't have to forgive it to say nope. you've healed that's bullshit and it, it, it is bullshit you are allowed to feel those feelings of anger you're allowed to look at it and go that was really unfair what we have to 
do with that anger and with those feelings of that was really unfair that's really hurt me is not allow it to control us we we control it we allow it to be but we're not letting it control us absolutely and I think the biggest thing there that I took from what you were saying is that from my own personal experience I used to feel like I had to force forgiveness and like I was doing something wrong if I couldn't access this part of me to forgive these people that did such awful things. And it's only just occurred to me that it's not that I have forgiven them or haven't. I just don't care anymore about whether I do. And that for me is where the closure starts to come in because that and that's what I think people misunderstand what forgiveness actually is. Because I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier about um, attention seeking and attention being packaged in different ways. Forgiveness is also packaged in different ways. Mm-hmm. We're taught that everything is just one thing, has a definition, is this. And people think that forgiveness is going along to your parents and saying, oh, I'm so sorry. Let's make friends. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> like that's just never going to happen because no. it just isn't. Like I've come to terms with that a long time ago. I'm fine with that, whatever. But with forgiveness, I think sometimes it naturally, you can't force it. That's the first thing I've learned. So the amount, it doesn't matter how many fucking people tell you, you've got to forgive these people and make you feel better. Yeah. That's, very, that's very annoying. That's probably going to push me back a year. I'm going yeah. to add on. Every time someone tells me to forgive, I'm deliberately not going to do it for another year. <laughs> yeah, it's just annoying. It has zero purpose to tell someone to forgive or to move on or yeah. any of these things. Zero purpose. It does nothing. It's like when you say to somebody who's in a full temper, calm down. Oh, don't. That is like waving <laughs> in, a fucking red flag. Yeah, <laughs> in the history of ever. I that's say, never worked. I literally <laughs> say this to people. And that and when people tell me to smile. I had a situation yeah. not that long ago just to go off on a tangent for a second I was doing a workshop for a boxing thing and um it was just me and a bunch of oh no it wasn't even boxing it was a weightlifting course I was doing and um uh, one of the lads it was just me and a load of men one of them decided that he needed to tell me to smile whilst I was lifting weights and I just looked him dead in the eyes and went have you ever told a woman to smile and it's worked (laughs) and do you know what that follow that sentence after anyone telling you to smile chill calm down they don't know what to do no they don't I said it to Ruben last night Ruben went calm down I went Ruben have you ever said to anybody calm down and known it actually work or does it not just piss you off like if I say to you when you're really angry with me Ruben and I say to you calm down does it not just piss you off and he like looks at me and he was like fair point mum fair point I mean he's nearly 12 but he was just like fair point mum so yeah, it, that's 12 is exactly the age you need to be having these conversations yeah because then he won't bloody well tell me to calm down because I, 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 I don't need to calm down we need to be angry anyone. guys come yeah. on <laughs> yeah it's never helped anyone telling them to calm down it's never gonna help honestly I this conversation has just been so freeing thank yeah. you <laughs> no thank you for taking the time to come on and talk to us I know I've said before when I've recorded podcast episodes about this, it's a really heavy topic. Yeah, really heavy. It is heavy. And I never used to understand that term. I used to be like, heavy. (laughs) Okay, don't get it. But it is a really heavy topic. It weighs on you. Mm -hmm. And my goal with this podcast is that if I can help somebody who was going through what I was going through, because I really was alone. Mm -hmm. It shattered my marriage. It shattered my life. It shattered everything. When we got to that point where I had to make a decision to cut ties, it just, it destroyed Mm -hmm. everything. And I was so alone in it. 
whilst trying to keep things yeah whilst trying to keep things going for these three kids of my own and I just remember feeling like I was the only person in the world that was going through this and you are never the only person you are never the freak the weirdo the oddball the person causing the problem when you're going through these things that's not that's just not right but it is the lie that we're sold about it because we shroud it in shame by keeping it completely silent and that's what I want to do is break that silence surrounding it and let people know that they're not alone oh I love that I love that and something I learned recently to kind of add on to that is that our ego is what covers the shadow self and so often we can find that we're too afraid to tell people what's going on because our ego is saying if we tell people they might think that you're the problem or they might judge you for not having a perfect family unit or whatever judgment arises and so when we learn that our ego is often what's protecting our healing it helps me to lose that ego because I was brought up in such an egotistical environment where everything and I don't even mean that in like a classic egotistical way I just mean everyone's egos were just so heightened and switched on and in fear of anyone ever looking anything other than perfect and so as now a recovering people please around a recovering perfectionist and all of these things (laughs) yeah I just wanted to add to that that you're allowed to let that ego just go sometimes Mm. and not be I was so adamant for years I needed everybody to understand exactly how I felt and be on my side and be on my team and not let them win and it's not until you stop trying to get people on your side and you stop caring about who wins that's when the healing begins when you stop caring about who wins this Mm. yeah because at the end of the day with estrangement and it is a sad fact I don't think there's any winners Mm -hmm. I think the only win that you can have is your peace yes The only win that you can have is knowing that you've done the right thing for you. And if they feel the same on the other side of it, knowing, feeling that they're the ones in the right and that's a win for them, that's okay. That's That's got nothing to do with you. And that's what it boils down to because there's no winners when you're talking about toxic family dynamics. It is an all round shitty situation, but the real win is in protecting your peace and knowing that you've done what's right for you yeah and not ignoring that child self yeah loving her (laughs) yeah exactly and it yeah it's that inner child it's going back and reparenting yourself and being able to say hey look you know we are okay we've made Mm. it here we've already lived through the worst of what we could we're okay yeah we can do anything except for answer phone calls to strangers don't like that (laughs) Um, yeah no that one's not not keen on that one not keen on that one at all and I mean like we said beforehand sometimes we like to rely on having a bit of quartz in our back pocket because it's (laughs) before we came on the call we were like we've got some really weird quirks that we've like picked up like I showed you a crystal I was like look I've got into crystals it's a new thing it's like in the last week but I kind of just like looking at them and like a fidget ring and you were like I have a quartz. Yay! <laughs> oh, no, it's a slippery slope. I've got a whole bag of yeah. them that I take with yeah. me everywhere. And I'm like, this one is for my abundance. This one is for my safety. <laughs> I'm like... But if you'd have me. asked me, like, five years ago, I'd have been like, it's fucking weird, man. <laughs> That's, I'm not a crystal girly. That's, like, Welcome. No, I'm far too logical. But now I'm like, oh, crystal. They're pretty I mean, come tiny. on. 
do we have any logic left? We've just been through a pandemic. There's a war. Everything is bad. Look, if if all we have is crystals, I'm that's that's what I'm turning to now. Exactly. I feel like the millennial generation could be the generation that is just like, do you know what? Fuck it. Anything we can find a little bit of joy in, <laughs> because we've lived crystals. through. Yeah, podcast crystals, tarot cards, bring them all in. Because frankly, we've lived through pandemics. We've lived through recessions. Every fucking year is a crisis. <laughs> a perma crisis. I'm it's literally a perma crisis. I think that's why I've just got to the point now where I've just given myself so much room to feel because I'm like, literally nothing's real anymore. So it's yeah. fine. Yeah. It's not, we're not millennials anymore. We're just a crisis generation. <laughs> if they don't call us that in history GCSEs in the future, I'm going to be pissed off and I'm going to haunt someone until they do. Exactly. I'm going to be telling my grandchildren, I'll be like, look, guys, I don't care what your history book says. Crisis. Millennial, sh- millennial, the crisis generation. My kids are going to look at me and be like, you were basically Wonder Woman. How did you ever manage to survive it all? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I didn't. I'm haunting you. Yeah, anyway. I'm haunting you. But... Can you let people know where they can find you, please? Nice and simple. It's just at Elspeth Fit, F-I-T, because as I mentioned at the start, I am also a fitness coach and do a lot around exercise therapy. So it's at Elspeth Fit on both TikTok and Instagram. And from there, you can kind of find any other links and whatnot. Kept it nice and simple. Amazing. That's fab. And I will put a link for that in the bio. And as always, guys, thank you so much for listening. Elspeth, thank you so much for your time today and for coming and talking on the podcast and sharing your experience with us, because I know it's going to be something that will resonate with so many people. Thank you so much. Honestly, yeah, it's just it's like you said, it's heavy, but hopefully it helps. That's the goal. So we will speak to you again next week, guys. And thank you, as always, for listening. I've been Harriet Shearsmith, and together we are Unfollowing Mum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.